this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Welcome to another bonus episode of the Book Riot Podcast. I've been looking forward to this for as long as we even had the idea to talk about movies and books together. And I don't think I know that Amanda Nelson, who's joining me today, uh, executive editor of Book Riot, was this quite a big of a Octoberite, <laughs> a, a redhead, a, um, a Marco Stan. I'm not sure Marco what, Stan, but yes. <laughs> we both love the movie, especially Hunt for October, and came to read the book again. Mm-hmm. Did you read it again? You had read it before yes. already. Um, in anticipation of this, which I think, well, we'll have more to say about it now. Um, but Amanda, thanks for 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 going on this journey, and we're probably going to spend more than one ping. Uh, oh on yeah, for October. <laughs> <laughs> one terrible Russian cigarette. <laughs> All right, yeah, such a bad cigarette. <laughs> well, let's. So I think let's start here. Let's tell the story of our story of these things. Mm-hmm. I read the book way after I saw the movie, but while I was in the middle of a run of early 90, early to mid 90s military thrillers, that, a genre I think Clancy sort of invented or popularized after um, 1984, you know, Stephen mm-hmm. Kuntz's The Flight of the Intruder and a whole, you know, then all the Clancy's and all the the imitators. Um, but I saw the movie, I, don't, I couldn't have seen them in the theater because it came out in 1990, I was 12. A, I was not the kind of kid that would watch a Cold War propaganda movie at 12. <laughs> And B, I just don't remember. And this had a huge life on video. And I remember distinctly the red VHS tape. Um, it was red? The, the plastic was red, yes. uh, which was amazing marketing at the time. And then, you know, we had it on tape. It was on cable all the time. Mm-hmm. And it has become, for Michelle and I, one of our movies. Like, we call it the sleep movie because there's something weirdly calm about impending thermonuclear destruction, <laughs> um, I guess. But we can talk about this when we get to the movie. But I've seen it pieces of it dozens of times there's parts of it i don't watch like i usually fast forward or whatever the equivalent is i start a little bit later in the movie but it's it's very much a part of the fabric of my sort of cultural dna tell me your story Mm -hmm. of the hunt for red october in your life i feel like there was never a time in my conscious memory where it was not playing on cable on sundays (laughs) that's right like my dad would fall asleep watching nascar and then immediately after nascar the hunt for red october happened or top gun it was like one of the two but they're kind of the same movie a little yes um and so i'm constant like i have seen it innumerable how many sundays have i had in my life that's minus (laughs) you know between 1984 and and uh 1990 when it came out. Uh, that's how many times I've probably seen it. I read the book after the Bourne movies came out, like the first Weird. Jason Bourne movie, because I loved the first Jason Bourne movie. And then I went back and I read all the Bourne books. Um, and while I was at it, I was like, well, what other cool military, mm. like spyish type books are out there? And, you know, obviously this came to mind because it was so part of my like existence. <laughs> um, so I read it, I think, in high, yeah, however old I was when the first, I was in high school when the first Bourne movie came out. So. 
That's when I read um, Hunt for Red October. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of Just Some Stupid Love Story. So in Just Some Stupid Love Story by Caitlin Doyle, Molly and Seth were best friends turned lovers until Molly ghosted Seth on the eve of their high school graduation, which is very trifling, I might add. So now they've reunited again at their high school reunion 15 years later, and they make a bet. Whoever can predict the fate of five couples before the next reunion must declare that the other is right about true love. But what is the catch, you might ask? Well, the catch is that the fifth couple is them. Dun, dun, dun. So this is a callback to the best 90s and early 2000s rom-coms. If you like When Harry Met Sally or How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, this will be right up your alley. This is also perfect for fans of romance readers of Emily Henry, Catherine Center, and others like that. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of Just Some Stupid Love Story, for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by World Editions, publisher of Salamalik by Khaled Alasmail. In this unflinching story about Arab masculinity and homoeroticism, Farat, a Syrian in his early 20s, visits Sibki Park in Damascus, one of the city's most popular cruising areas. There he learns about the hammams, secret meeting places for gay men located throughout the old city. So inside these public baths, the air is thick with the scent of bay laurel soap and naked men hide in the steam. Ferd faces sometimes violent disapproval from all levels of society, regime, religion, the man in the street, you name it. And yet he manages to find the love he's been seeking just before his world collapses and he's forced to flee. Find out more about Salamlik by Khaled Alasmael, translated from the Arabic by Larry Price at IndiePubs.com slash products slash Salamlik. That's S-E-L-A-M-L-I-K. And thanks again to World Editions, publisher of Salamlik by Khaled Alasmael for sponsoring this episode. Let's do what's it about plot overview for those of you who haven't seen it or read it or has been a while. So the plot is actually on the top level, very simple. Um, the Soviet Union has developed a new kind of submarine propulsion system called the Caterpillar Drive. <laughs> this, the, the, the bad Scottish accent, I'm gonna, you're going to get so much of it. I'm so sorry and not sorry at the same time. That allows um, the submarine to basically um, be propelled silently, can't be picked up um, on conventional listening devices, sonar, you know, other sorts of things. And so the sub could put as a nuclear missile submarine, so it could be put, you know, basically in New York Harbor. Mm -hmm. And as I say, at one point, they'd have less than two minutes warning (laughs) um, if if someone were to launch missiles there. Marco Ramius, played by Sean Connery, um, decides that this is, well, we can talk about this, basically decides to defect to the U.S. from the Soviet Union, taking the boat and his officer corps with him. Not all the crewmen on the submarine, but, the, you know, was it half dozen to attend officers, I guess yeah, it looks like? Yeah, like, I think it's six. The, a, because he wants to take them, and B, he needs the officers to be on board in order to enact this. Um, and the hunt for October is the Russians find out that he's going to do this, and they don't want him to. And then the Americans find out he's maybe going to defect or maybe he's going to nuke us all. <laughs> and they start hunting for him. And it begins a giant hunt for Red October. And other th- and everything enacts from that. First of all, I've got to say, 
What a wonderful title. Mm -hmm. I mean, what an incredible title. I don't know much about Clancy himself, but calling the boat the Red October and calling the book the Hunt for October is carrying a lot of water for the whole thing, right? Yeah, he was really good at like Patriot games. Like, yes, yes, I'm here for that. The Cardinal of the Kremlin. I don't even know what that's about, but like, I want to blow something up. Yeah, (laughs) totally. (laughs) So that's it. And let's talk about the book first. Um, very modest beginning, mm-hmm. actually, uh, printed by the Naval, Naval Institute Press. Clancy, you know, some people, there's sort of um, urban legends that Clancy got secret information from the Navy, whatever. Turns out he was just a dude who got turned away from the Navy because he had bad eyes, mm. but always loved naval warfare and, you know, the, the minutia of what it meant to put vessels on the high seas. Was reading sub-technical manuals. He interviewed like you do. some people that would talk to him like you do because it was a hobby. He submitted to this technical journal that he had submitted a technical journal, a technical article to a while ago. They said this is interesting, but cut these hundred pages of technical details. Which you've read the hunt. If you've read the hunt for an October, you know. Oh my God, there was even more technical details, which there was. They gave him a sum of five thousand dollars for an advance. Mm. And then somehow, this is, I couldn't find, it got in the hands of Ronald Reagan, who said, you know, basically gave it a blurb, not a blurb, it wasn't on the copy, but in some form or or whatever said, this is a ripping good yarn, (laughs) got picked up and became a New York Times bestseller. Um, It sold 600,000 copies in hardcover and then in paperback, Berkeley Press got the paperback rights, has to this point sold 4.3 million copies. which is a publishing sensation. That's a lot of book. That's a that's a lot of units to sell. Um, the book, in terms of the plot, is it fair to say the high level plot is basically the same? Yeah. Yeah. What do we want to say about the book? Is the book a good read for for people who love? The, probably, I'm sure more people have seen the movie than have read the book. Would we recommend going back and reading the book if you love the movie? No. No, no, absolutely no. not. No. I mean, it's this, It's a level of nerddom that like only your grandpa who served in Korea is going to get into, you know, like it, yeah. it's so technically detailed. Yeah, the whole time I was reading it, I was like, this is a modern Moby Dick. You know, people who read Moby Dick and cannot get past mm-hmm. the whale anatomy stuff and like the informational chapters about the boat's equipment and all of that crap like it's that for submariners like that's exactly what it is it's moby dick for subs it's his hard on for hardware is intense i mean we get the you know the 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 exact name of the not just the plane but the engine model Mm -hmm. in the plane Mm -hmm. um i'm sure if you did there's it's it's very difficult to follow though i'm sure if you got one of those I don't know what those things are called. You see them in movies all the time where they, the, the commanders or whatever around this giant table has a map on it and they're all these little you know figures representing various forces or tank squadrons or ships and they move them around with like those shuffleboard things. I'm sure if you did that it, with Hunt for Red October, it would all check out. Like the, the ship was right where it's supposed to be and it was over here and the whole thing. But as a reading experience, if I had read this on its own without knowing that Tom Clancy was a thing or that the movie was a thing... I would never in a billion years guess this was going to be a phenomenon. No, I wouldn't have even finished it, I don't think. I, d- I, I mean, I did so finish either. it in high school because back then I still had, like, I have to finish every book I start. That was still a thing I cared about. Right. So I did finish it, but I'm 100% sure I skimmed most of it. Yeah. And the hunt for Red October piece, you know, a lot that you expect from the movie isn't there. The centrality of Ramius, mm-hmm. like, he's a in, certainly in the hunt for Red October. 
but he's not the central character, or, or is this a central character, but doesn't have the primacy he does in in the movie for sure. There's a whole bunch of other stuff about British intelligence. There's a whole bunch more stuff about how they got the pictures of the Caterpillar Drive. And I, I realized, and I said, I, I DM'd you when we were sort of starting to read this, or you were, I was already done, you were starting to read the book. I said, my takeaway about the book is that the screenwriters are geniuses. <laughs> because the movie is so much better mm-hmm. Than the book that it's um it's a it seems to me a minor miracle of adaptation, um that they, what they did without really changing all that much they just cut down, and, cut, cut, so down much, and cut, yeah. down and cut 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 down and got to the central thing which is basically a slow speed nautical car chase mm-hmm. is essentially what it was um, with missiles <laughs> um, and toupees which I have thirty minutes on um, hair pieces. Uh, that we can do in a minute here if we need to do. But that's really it. And so we're not going to spend too much time talking about what we didn't like about the book because I think what we really want to talk about is how much we like the movie, yes. I think. But what else do we want to say about the book? I have a couple of notes, but why don't you go through what you've got about the book? My, my main takeaway from rereading the book, and I did not catch any of this when I was in high school, is that the book is a massive work of propaganda enormous and it's it's distracting like it's so distracting i mean of course the movie is also very usa rah 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 whatever but the book it like takes it to a completely other like there's a a scene in the beginning uh when you're meeting in the beginning of the book when you're meeting um marco as a character and clancy's explaining his backstory and he explains his his defection from the soviet union as being not about so much the death of his wife like it is in the movie, but being about that plus how he had a religious upbringing secretly in Lithuania and like communism is godless and therefore can never satisfy a thinking Mm man. And it like, that is the reason that Clancy gives for his defecting is that like, there's no Jesus in the USSR, (laughs) which was just bonkers to me. And then there was another moment at the end and I actually Instagrammed this because it was amazing when Jack Ryan and Marco meet and they're talking about like, why all of this happened um he, no it's not marco it's one of the other officers um, yep and 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 jack ryan says something like you have to believe in some kind of higher power because if you don't then sartre is right and who wants that kind of world and it's just this amazing moment of like what and at the, the cessation of this massive military operation you're gonna hang out with this guy and talk about like why Camus can't be correct and that's the yeah. reason why the soviet union needs to be brought down this is so terrible it's so bad it's so bad yeah the the uh, the <laughs> soviet union sucks and the u.s is great mm-hmm. um melody is a chorus in the book and the crewmen you know marco aramius is upset because his crew isn't treated very well they don't have good quarters you know they're not mm-hmm. fed very well at home you know a lot of the ending is quite a bit different in the book um in the movie you know the crewmen abandoned ship because they've been led to believe there's a radiation problem and they get picked up in the movie, excuse me, in the book, they all go over to the U S they all get taken into the U S and some of them stay because they see how great TV is apparently. And that's <laughs> and enough traffic. to keep them in o- traffic and all, everyone has their own cars and stuff. And all of that, o- almost all of it is down from a propaganda point of view. The movie is almost a completely different beast. And we can talk about when we get that, like, what are Marco's motivations in the movie? It's a little bit unclear. It's totally unclear. Like, they yeah. don't, right, I mean, yeah, okay, so we can talk about it later. But, like, in the book, it's explained explicitly that his wife died because of Soviet... Shoddy health care. Right, ineptitude. Nepotism, yeah, right. And, like, that 
actually I think is a point in the book's favor when compared to the movie that like that's a reason I get like your wife mm-hmm. is dead because your country is garbage like that's the reason to hand a nuclear sub over to somebody I would be I mean it's under it's a very human yes. response but in the movie you, you they talk about how his wife has died and Jack Ryan has that explosive amazing moment in the press brief or in the brief son of a bitch yeah, son of a bitch <laughs> Where he says, you know, it's the anniversary of his wife's death. And understandably, all the chief of staff are like, so? Because he never explains yeah. it. Like, Never explains his it. His wife yeah. is dead. Who cares? What does that have to do with anything? It's never explained in the movie. That's never explained in the movie. So uh, that's one thing that the book was slightly, well, and maybe overdetermined because it was his wife and the mm-hmm. crew and the thing, maybe a little bit overdetermined, but it certainly gives a little more insight to it. I think in the movie for an American viewer, it's implied. Tell me what you think about this. It, I guess we're just sort of supposed to believe that, yeah, defect to the U.S. for we all we know the reasons because the U.S. is better. Mm-hmm. Like that's the implied reason. When it's a little more complicated than that. I mean, really, it's more complicated. But in the book, it's different. I think when we get to the movie part, we can talk about it to some degree. The dialogue in the book <laughs> is just pro forma. It's not great. No. Um, the the stuff I like in the movie is all from the movie. Um, there's very little that's you know, this the, the one being only all that all this stuff is great is is better in the movie. The propaganda is tough. It's really tough, and I think it's worth saying that the book came out in 1984, and the the events of the book were supposed to be contemporaneous. Like they knew it wasn't real, but like you read this in November 1984, come out, you're supposed to think this happened today. Mm-hmm. Like this could happen right now. By 1990, when the movie comes out. Just that six-year span, it's a radically different geopolitical landscape because the Berlin Wall has come down, the Soviet Union is crumbling. Basically, the the Red Army is no longer controlled just by the Communist Party. And Connery apparently almost didn't take the role because he thought this is dated. Mm-hmm. But then he said, We're gonna we're gonna pitch it as a historical piece. It's not a this is happening now. This is a, you know, like a World War II story almost, even though it would have been applicable just three years before. And so I think a lot of the political propaganda stuff. A was bad, and B wouldn't make very compelling TV viewing or excuse me, movie viewing in 1990 because like all this is over. Yeah, this, this is so. Really, what it comes down to is Raimi's going to make it, and is Ryan right? Mm-hmm. I mean, th- that seems to be the tension that goes forward, and it works. It works um, really beautiful. Well, okay. today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. From the best-selling author of The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle comes a new mystery. A fog has swept the planet, killing anyone it touched except for the island where villagers and scientists live in harmony. The villagers content to do what they're told by the scientists. But then one of the beloved scientists is found brutally stabbed to death, and they realize the security system around the island has malfunctioned and has wiped everyone's memories of exactly what happened the night before. So someone on the island is a murderer and they don't even know it. Best-selling author Stuart Turton is a major voice in the mystery space, The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, and his second novel, The Devil and the Dark Water, have sold over 450,000 copies and become a TikTok phenomenon. He's received fantastic reviews from best-selling authors in major outlets. Make sure to check out his latest work, The Last Murder at the End of the World. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Penguin Team. 
In a world where the children of the gods inherit their powers, a descendant of the Greek fates must solve a series of impossible murders to save her sisters, her soulmate, and her city. Descendants of the fates are always born in threes. There's one to weave, one to draw, and one to cut the threads that connect people to the things they love and to life itself. And the Aura sisters are no exceptions. There is Eo, the youngest, who uses her fate-born abilities as a private investigator, but her latest job leads her to a horrific discovery. Somebody is abducting women and setting the results wraiths loose in the city to kill now the second book in the series hearts that cut will be on sale june 18th 2024 this is a must read for all greek mythology and fantasy fans this is dripping with atmosphere edge with danger threads that bind weaves together a gorgeous dark tapestry of mystery faded romance and modern myth you won't be able to put this one down and that comes from alexander bracken new york times best-selling author of lore so make sure to pick up threads that bind by kitsa hatsapolu and thanks again to penguin teen for sponsoring this episode okay let's get to the movie mm. what do we like about this movie i was having a re- michelle and i were talking about it last night i'm having a very hard time articulating what i like about this movie so i'm gonna throw it to you first so i don't have to go okay i think that the hunt for red october is competence porn and yes. everybody loves watching someone do something skillfully. And Jack Ryan is a very relatable character. Like, he's he's just, mm-hmm. like, some CIA dude. He's an analyst. He's an author. He's a historian. He's not, like, a super spy. He's not Jason Bourne. He just has this amazing understanding of, the like, the enemy and has an insight that he you would then watch him carry out. And, like, he is right. And watching him do it is really fascinating. And then Ramius is also... <laughs> competence porn like he's this brilliant submariner and Mm. and, uh, military commander who has spent his entire like career building up to this moment Um, and like the most enjoyable scenes are you know like when ryan exclaims son of a bitch like when he has these realizations and then watching him make them happen or when he's trying to get off that helicopter onto the dallas yes and succeeds in doing it and then that captain you know mancuso is looking down at him and he's like "Ah," you know like those moments where people are doing their jobs well are that's what the whole movie is and then the people who fail are the russians so you can feel good about it only one person makes one mistake in the whole movie mm. as far as i can tell i i didn't i like competence porn i didn't call it but i had this similar kind of like you're watching people you're like watching chess grandmasters play each other yeah. to, to some degree the only person who makes a mistake that i can tell is tupolev mm-hmm. um he makes two mistakes i guess one is he doesn't arm his torpedoes right so that ramius can basically turn into the torpedoes and ram into them before they're armed. Okay, fine. And then he shoots the torpedoes at the Red October later, and then Dallas outmaneuvers him basically through reasons that I don't really understand, (laughs) and they kind of magically hand wave in the movie, gets the torpedoes to turn around and fire back on um, the Kanapolov, which is Tupolev's boat. Tupolev played by Stellan Skarsgård, very sweatily, very sweaty portrayal of um, a submarine captain. But even Tupolev's mistakes are of commission rather than omission. He's not dumb, mm-hmm. just that Ramius is a little bit better. And Bert Mancuso, there's two subs against one. So there isn't really a failure. So everybody wins. Ryan wins. Um, the Dallas wins. Uh, every, everybody wins. You know, Cook's assistant, Loganoff, who's the saboteur, who we certainly don't understand in the movie no. how the hell he knows what's going on. Yeah. But in the book, we get a little bit. <laughs> he's very competent. You know, he's basically almost going to foil the whole thing by himself and then he's only um foiled because 
Alec Baldwin pulls off this amazing monkey hanging from a tree gun <laughs> maneuver in the missile silo part of the From like a dude who's not, who doesn't have any military training. <laughs> and who we're told his back is so bad that he can't be part of the Marines anymore. Very, very athletic Alec Baldwin performance. It's like, what if Leslie Nope was in the CIA and a dude and you have Jack Ryan, yeah. basically? He, he's, he's a walking stack of briefing papers. Mm-hmm. Um which is really fascinating. I think some of the positioning of the characters like Skip Tyler and Ryan aren't really part of the military exactly. Like one's a CIA analyst that's maybe freelancing and Skip Tyler is working in the military industrial complex, Mm -hmm. but not working for the Navy. But I think that part is great. And look, Connery wasn't the, unbelievably Connery wasn't the first choice to play Ramius. It was this other guy that Michelle and I looked up and we recognized like, oh, that guy. Mm -hmm. But this is Connery. This movie works because Connery just, Stares at things in profile. He just broods. <laughs> just broods and stares things in profile and looks competent. He only one time even raises his voice barely when they're making the run to Thor's twins. And, you know, one of his people is saying, Captain, you're off by more than a boat. Like, he goes, shut up. Mm-hmm. And that's really it. Even when they're about to get blown up by torpedoes, he backhands a teacup that's slanting and just sort of catches it with a smirk on his face. Like, this dude makes James Bond look hysterical. Yeah. Um, it's really remarkable stuff from Connery. It just feels like you're being held by yeah. really, really smart people in a very low stakes game, which is actually super high stakes. Yes. But it doesn't feel that way because everyone knows what they're doing from the jump. And you don't believe for a second that Connery's going to get out maneuvered. No. I think that's another key part of it. Like you say, you're in safe hands. The movie's... The movie has you in safe hand because it's basically told from the beginning. There's no way Connery is going to like get blown up by sweaty Stellan Sarsgaard. Like yeah. it's just not going to happen. <laughs> um, so I think you're right. That that part's very interesting. In the movie, I realized, again, like you have seen it so many times, there is no before with Hunt for an October. There is no memory of seeing it for the first time. But you actually do have kind of a long time in the movie before you know for certain that they're defecting and not going to launch. You know, they're not looking to nu- nuke Boston. But even that, I think is only technically true. Like, you don't believe that Connery is really a villain, that he's gone crazy and mm-hmm. is going to blow everybody up. So, I, I mean, Connery clearly is the number one person here. I think after that, of course, it's Alec Baldwin as Jack Ryan, who was also not the first choice. The first choice was Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford didn't take the part. Oh, I had the note. Why? He says he didn't take the part because, oh, because Connery got too much. He didn't get, Connery got, was the starring role. So Harrison oh. Ford didn't want to play second fiddle. Which, once the movie became a huge success and Alec Baldwin tried to negotiate for more money to keep playing Jack Ryan, they said, nope, we've got Harrison Ford waiting in the wings. So um, Harrison Ford played Jack Ryan in Patriot Games and Clear and Present Danger, uh, which were both not as good, no. but Fine. I watched them. Not nearly as good, but still still watched them there. And what are we saying about Baldwin's performance, who has now become sort of a troublesome figure? One of my problematic phase, I have to say, about Baldwin... Mm-hmm. Um, in this movie, he's not the Alec Baldwin we know now. He's a different kind. The performance is really interesting. What, what do we like about this Jack Ryan? Uh, I feel like this is the only thing I've seen Alec Baldwin in that I like. Mm. And I can't... You don't like 30 Rock Jack Donaghy? Baldwin? I think that that is who Alec Baldwin actually is. I agree. <laughs> Which is, like, makes me uncomfortable because, I, well, for obvious reasons, of now things that we know about Alec Baldwin. But I think Alec Baldwin mm-hmm. is that dude from 30 Rock. But in The Hunt for Red October, he is so much more, um, like, everyman. 
Yeah. Even though he is like this brilliant author and this like independently wealthy stockbroker. <laughs> I love that detail in the book where you find out that Jack Ryan played the stock market until he got bored. And that's why he like took the job at the CIA because he didn't want to do that anymore and like made enough money that he didn't care about it anymore. I love that so much. Incredible wish fulfillment right? from Clancy, right? right? That's why he wants to be independently wealthy and just sort of like parachute in for the CIA when he's got something And write naval histories. Mm-hmm. And write naval histories about Admiral Halsey. I see you. Um, yeah. Yeah, he's the, like, I, I don't know. It's like watching an everyman defeat bureaucracy and defeat like the military complex in order to save the day and people along the way throw up very minor roadblocks to his path to victory like (laughs) they disagree with him for about two seconds and then he always gets his way but that's kind of the point like you're watching this dude who knows that he's right and who isn't part of this machine in any like powerful way manipulate it to win and and that's just very satisfying and alec baldwin manipulating shit is he's good at that yeah, and he's very he he plays it with a with an interesting kind of vulnerability. Not that you don't think he knows what he's talking about, but he takes other people's objections seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, like if someone says, "Well, what about X?" He's like, "Oh, that's a good point. What about X?" And it's like, "Well, let me think about that in the shower, and I'll figure it out." Like <laughs> that stuff is a lot of fun, and he plays it with. There's a certain intellectual humility that comes through, even though he does know what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. He's like, you know, at one point, it's like he has to guess something about what Ramis is going to do because he needs um, the wonderful Scott Glenn to believe him that he knows what he's talking about. And he basically takes a guess that turns out to be right. And then he admits it to Scott Glenn, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, a very interesting detail about Jack Ryan is like, he's not, he he doesn't lie, um, really. He is a straight shooter who wants to do the right thing for the sake of the rightness of the thing itself, even if it means... Um, disobeying a direct order, mm-hmm. right? Like he, he, he's not above or below or wherever we are in the ocean, <laughs> disobeying direct orders and going outside of the system to do the thing that is right, which I think undercuts some of the, I don't know, it, it's one thing that makes it rewatchable is that it's not just government propaganda. Mm-hmm. It is like Jack Ryan like says that the right thing is outside of what the government and my superior officers are telling me to do. It's some other thing. Um, and that's the game is not U.S. versus Soviet Union. It's Ryan plus Ramius doing the right thing. And how can they get together? A lot like a lot like sort of like Sleepless in Seattle to some degree. <laughs> like they're separated by a continent or an ocean. They're communicating in these sort of secondary ways. And will they get together in the end? Will they have a HEA? Is kind of the the story. And we get a very wonderful tender moment with them. Hunt for uh, Red October as like a bromance is yes. Oh, yeah, very much so. Um, so Baldwin is next on the, on the star chart. I think that's and, something, sorry, something else that I appreciate about Jack Ryan as a character, like in all of the movies, no matter who's playing him, is that he's he's like polite. <laughs> yes. Which is strange because, not strange, but, you know, so many of these big action movies are about dudes who like don't care about anybody's feelings or like they're just like jerks basically um who it's this like masculine fantasy of like i can talk to people however i want to and it doesn't matter but like that scene where he tricks uh mancuso on the dallas there's also a really great moment where where he first goes down into that whatever it is the command room i don't know what it's called Um, Yeah, yeah and he's like oh captain i have to talk to you and mancuso says not now he listens like Jack Ryan stops talking yes. and he moves to the side and lets the crew continue to do. And he does that also when he's on that big aircraft carrier with um, Fred. Mm-hmm. What's his name? Fred Dalton Thompson. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and he, you know, I need to talk to you. And he, the, and he says, not, not now. And he just stops. And it's just, a, that's 
so rare for an action hero to like listen to people who are in charge for a second and shut up and it and in both cases it turns out to be like no no no, the thing that the, the captain is dealing with actually is more important than whatever you have to say so I don't know. Like that, I really appreciated in the movie. And he does it in the book too. Like, and, and in all of the movies, Jack Ryan is, he goes outside of authority to do the thing that he thinks is right. But when he's talking to a human, he's never like a jerk. Well, and even some of the stereotypical roles we get now in, I don't, I want to say less competent movies, mm-hmm. but more, more cliched movies is that there's the national security advisor that has like some political agenda, yeah. or there's the sub captain or the, the admiral that's looking for a promotion everyone here is agendaless. Yeah. There's no one here that's trying to do, everyone's a pretty straight shooter. They will listen. Maybe the biggest fantasy of this is everyone will listen to a reasonable argument yeah. and agree with you, right? Um, Jeffrey Pelt, who is kind of a, I don't know, a proto twist on this character in a lot of different movies. I'm thinking of the Pelican Brief, right? The mm-hmm. National Security Advisor, the Chief of Staff, conniving jerk. Jeffrey Pelt, he says, you know, he, he says overtly he's that, you know, when I'm not kissing babies, I'm still in their lollipop. Mm-hmm. So even his agenda is overt. He's being straight about his sort of reality of it. And he listens to Ryan and he says, I'm going to ask you to do this crazy thing because you're expendable. And Ryan says, oh yeah, I get that. And they both sort of agree that we both understand mm-hmm. that you're the one doing this because you you don't have much at stake. And Mancuso listens and Skip Tyler listens and Admiral Greer listens and just everybody listens to other people's reasonable argument, which I think is kind of remarkable. And I think you're right. The manners is part of this. If you have the best argument, you win Mm -hmm. and you wait your turn. And there's almost a manners about it, which I didn't really think of in these terms, but it's kind of a mannered sort of thing in Ramius. And there's a certain... There's like this know, honorable gentleman of the Navy thing yeah, kind of happening. Right. And the Russians are wearing their formal dress attire the whole, the whole time, time. <laughs> for reasons I don't understand. They don't have fatigues. I don't understand that either. But it does lend it a, a regalness and in a, in a, almost a courtroom, not even a courtroom, like a drawing room mm. kind of atmosphere where there's there's manners and protocol that have to be obeyed except when... They don't when they shouldn't be obeyed for a higher calling, which I think is fun. That's just a fun kind of setting to be in. Something that I especially I liked about the Pelt character is that he's got that cliched Texas accent that's like code in movies for I'm an incompetent, duplicitous dork. Right. Um, and like even <laughs> right. before, obviously, even before W was in office, that like very, that Texas accent was code for like you don't have to trust this person. But they totally subvert that. In this movie, yeah. which I love, like he gets to be a Southerner who has a backbone and is competent. And that's pretty rare in movies and books and all art. <laughs> Those scenes with Pelt and the, the, the Russian ambassador are gold. Yes. Too. That guy that plays the Russian ambassador, I don't know if the casting note was, can we find someone that looks exactly like Mikhail Gorbachev? Yeah. But they found someone <laughs> who looks exactly like Mikhail Gorbachev. And he's wonderful in those scenes of... At some point, it becomes clear that they both know that they're lying to each other, mm-hmm. that, you know, I know that you know that I know that you know kind of stuff, which is just fun. Yeah. That that kind of stuff is just fun. I don't have any casting what it or I have casting what ifs. They're not that interesting for the, the second and tertiary characters. But in terms of this, is someone actively bad? It, I'm not sure that he's bad. He just seems like he's in the wrong movie or is, is the wrong energy is... Um, Tim Curry Absolutely. as the Russian medical doctor. He's sort of fun when he comes on, but Tim Curry plays some, everything is so smart in knowing that he has to play the dupe here, like the one guy in the Russian sub who do, gets speaking part and doesn't know what's going on. It's like, I don't believe for a second. 
uh, that Tim Curry no. <laughs> doesn't have any idea what's going on. So that's the only one I was like, Curry's not bad. It's not actively bad, but I'm like, it's just a weird part for Curry. Yeah, I'm, I'm not into it. That moment when he is arguing with uh, Marco and he goes, Captain, and he looks so like <laughs> wounded. It's like, stop it. Yes. Like, this is a camp. Stop it. So that no one man right. can launch the missiles. missiles. Okay, buddy. <laughs> yeah, okay. And then, and then everyone's like, okay, doctor, you noted. And then Marco pulls the ultimate flex. It was like, you know, I'll try to forget in my official report, mm-hmm. you trying to tell me that I couldn't take both missile kills. Though clearly Curry's in the right. right. You know, clearly he's saying the right thing, but he, Ramius is such a presence that even him just gaslighting him works. And everyone's like, oh, sh- shit, step off. And the, when they say, when Marco says that they're going to scuttle the ship and like the face that Tim Curry makes is really weird. He <laughs> yeah. tries to make this like, you're so brave face. And it just, <laughs> you're going to win. The, they'll give you the order of Lenin. Lenin right? This. It just looks sarcastic. Like mm-hmm. he can't do it. <laughs> He can't do it. Can't do it. It's it's funny too because this isn't. This is like what two years off Clue, mm-hmm. which one of the most knowing sort of genre bending. He's basically the MC of that movie, and here he has to play. I don't know. I don't even know what the point of his character, except that there is someone who I guess he helps us with the radiation stuff. Yeah. Right. He's he's got to be there to say. Oh, he's got to believe that the radiation is is a problem, so that everyone else gets off the ship. Um, so Curry's the the one I would miscast, but really, I mean. Uh, Admiral Greer, James Earl Jones is Admiral Greer. I want, I want all the Greer in a room <laughs> with coffee talking about whatever. I, I love those moments with Greer. Um, he's fantastic. Mm-hmm. In the briefing, that's it. my favorite that's moment. That's it. He's, mm-hmm, okay, good. That's, that's a nice No, he's note. great. Mm-hmm. My favorite moment with him is in the, the chief of staff briefing where he says, I told you to speak your mind. But Jesus, yes. and just but like Jesus, pats Jack. him on the back and then leaves, like just totally abandons him. <laughs> I love it. Uh, uh, it's really good. Um, other standout performances or notable performances? Hmm, Sam Neill, I think was it's yes, like just Kamarov. the saddest face the whole time, and having to the, thread that needle of trusting your captain who is making decisions that you think are certifiable. Yes. While keeping yes. everyone else in line and not revealing what's going on. He does it so well. Like, I don't know if I could have handled. I could, obviously, because I'm not a freaking <laughs> submarine mariner trying to defect with a billion dollar ship. But that it's so much pressure for him. And he does it so well. He's like, he's just conflict face the whole time. One of my favorite characters is the loyal lieutenant who all is struggling with doubt. Mm-hmm. Like, they're ultimately loyal, but they are struggling with I'm in this, I trust this guy, but this particular move seems kind of weird. <laughs> you know, I, I, I really enjoy that, um, that, yeah, that, that sort of moral loyalty that doesn't completely abandon a critical consciousness. I've always enjoyed mm-hmm. a character, and he does, he gets to do that very well, where maybe, maybe Marco is fallible. Even those around him are not privy to what's really going on and the the scene where um Kamarov talks about you know I'm going to need to you know basically you get the 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 moral uh, the the center of desire mm-hmm. for the defection comes out of Sam Neill's mouth which is I can move around the state with no papers mm-hmm. no papers like no papers is basically the motivation we're supposed to understand in a nutshell yep. and that's some Neil gets that but then he turns it around on Ramius to say what yes, what, what, what do, do you, you want? want yes and Ramius is like I have no such desire. And he's like, I like a bit of fishing. I'm like, what is this That's guy? Nasty. Is this Socrates? <laughs> like, what is going on here? Um, but Sam, so Sam Neill does give us the sort of heart of the Soviet sub commanding crew's desire. And it's really just as simple as, 
I like to drive around without papers. With a round that's American it. woman and a rabbit oh, yeah. arm. Um, and, 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 that's right. Um, so Sam Neill is really good, the, you know, chief pathos officer <laughs> once he's uh, shot as I, as I DM'd you. Mm-hmm. Um, other perform- cor- a, a baby Courtney B. Vance um, as Jonesy. Mm, Jonesy. The, I love Jonesy the, the, so much. Who, ha- who has a lot of work to do in the book and the movie. There's a very pivotal character because basically he's an enlisted man. He's not even an officer um, who is a genius at listening for things in the water, yeah. apparently. And um, he is the one that basically figures out a way to track the Red October um, and allows the movie to proceed because if they couldn't, they, then Ramius just sort of drives a quiet sub to, to New Jersey and that's, and that that's it. that they don't really point out in the book or the movie is that the hunt for the red october is over as soon as it leaves port because it does jonesy picks up that sub immediately like they leave port and he immediately hears it like the hunt is we, we gotta say this for nitpicks because there's <laughs> oh, there's yeah. several okay. things around that but you're totally you're we, we have to sort of hand wave over that until the end for now yes. we're still talking about things we like um he's great he, there's a really wonderful scene at the beginning where you hear what kind of a sound nerdy is because of Pavarotti and paganini and all the stuff is really great there. Um, let's see. Yeah, Jeffrey Pelt, mm-hmm. a character, an actor I don't remember seeing in other parts. Me neither. Uh, is really good. We get, you know, three or four Russian sub officers who just do Russian sub officers thing. You know, ha- have kind of a vaguely European accent and get to <laughs> say good lines. Um, I don't care. The man was a pig. <laughs> um, really good stuff from from those guys. The direct John McTiernan was a director um, known best as an action for his the act the, the transformative action movie Die Hard, and I'm not saying that ironically. Like that was a transformative action movie, mm-hmm. um, and his star was on the rise. He turned down directing Die Hard two to direct this, and then had to turn down directing subsequent Jack Ryan movies to direct other Die Hard sequels. So he's mm-hmm. kind of back and forth. In action movies, this movie was nominated was the only movie to be nominated for best editing for an Oscar that year that wasn't also nominated for best picture, which I thought was really interesting. A beautiful movie. The actual, I don't know. I, I you know, I, in a different life, I'm a mo- bigger movie nerd than I really am. Mm. But some there's interesting things like so. Basically, for the middle two thirds of the movie, we're on subs, and they all kind of look the same. Mm-hmm but they light them slightly differently so that you can reorient yourself. Like the red October's interior lighting is mostly red. The Dallas's is mostly blue and the Kanapolov's is mostly green. So you sort of always know uh, where you are at that time. Also, I like that the Russians, I mean, everyone speaks English and we get, maybe this is a nitpick. I'm not sure. It's one of the, one of the memorable the scenes scene. <laughs> where, where we go from speaking Russian to English. We just sort of zoom in on the political officer's mouth as he's saying the word Armageddon, which is creepy and weird. Well, it's um, the same in both languages. That's why they picked yes, that, which I did not know. Languages. Yeah. yeah. But then they switch over and then the, I don't know, the very the, uh, 50 shades of white <laughs> actors from non U.S locations that play the Russians. You know, Stellan Skarsgård's Norwegian, mm-hmm. Sam Neill's Australian, Connery is um, Scottish, um, which is funny. It's just funny. Like, anybody who's not an American accent, you can read as Russian. Yeah. Which, uh, frankly, reads to me, read to me as a 12-year-old, oh, they're just different, so they could be Russian. <laughs> Anyone that says an American accent is a plausible Russian <laughs> uh, at that particular point. Um, there's something sued. The sound design is wonderful. I, Basil Pompadouris, who did the soundtrack, I love the soundtrack. The, like you the get, Russian It's anthem. wonderful. Oh, oh it's good. 
One of my bits for Michelle is just to make up words to the Russian national anthem <laughs> and just start randomly. <laughs> um, and then it does his own version of the Red October theme, which is this men's chorus singing in Russian. <gasps> uh, it's just fantastic stuff. I feel like, yeah, it's just every time I hear that sound, I just feel like I'm supposed to be at war somewhere. For It doesn't yes. matter for who or like on what side or in defense of what. Just like, why am I not on a steed? I need to be on a steed. <laughs> and the, there's like, a, I don't even know what you'd call it, but there's, like, there's an underwater light motif that's this, it's singing, but it doesn't have words. It's just sort of choral chanting mm-hmm. for when the, the boats are swimming along underwater. And there's something, I don't know what, I don't know what it feels like to have ASMR or to be like attracted to ASMR videos, but if it's anything like watching the Red October navigate underwater with that music playing and like the slightly like thrumming of the engine, it's very, it's like a, it's like a hyperbaric chamber for the soul down there. <laughs> like it's very, it's very relaxing, even though there seems to be a lot of stake. Interesting, the sub, the sub stuff, I never thought about this until I was looking at for this episode. Like this is, a, these are all models, which I figured but I thought they'd be model shot underwater. They're actually shot in a warehouse that's full of smoke that they've lit from above with blue lights. Oh, smart. So it's all, and when you, once you mirrors, see it again, <laughs> you'll see, you'll be like, oh yeah, that is totally smoke. Mm-hmm. But if you're not told that, you're like, it looks like it's underwater. And if you look at it pretty hard, I think some of the underwater ballet stuff of sub versus sub doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. But if you don't look at it hard, it tracks. I feel like you're not confused somehow. Is is that your experience of it? Yeah, the only moment where I didn't quite follow what was going on is when the Dallas intercepts that missile. Yeah. Um, Because at that, I was like, wait, who the fuck is that? Like, who? Is that a whale? Like, what's happening? Because I forgot that the Dallas was there. (laughs) A biologic seaman, Beaumont. Um, (laughs) I forgot that they were there for a minute. Yeah, the the, the, the dance of the three subs at the end is tough. Mm -hmm. It's tough. I mean... You understand the meta point, which is they've outmaneuvered the Russian sub into shooting itself. Mm-hmm. How exactly that happens doesn't really matter, but the, the beats of it are sort of right. Uh, hey, did you know stuff? Things I've already done some of the Hey We Google stuff. Huh. Um, yeah, so something that I, I actually knew because I paid attention to his campaign was the guy who plays... What is it, the Admiral on the... Yeah, I don't know. Dresser? It's Fred Dalton Thompson. I don't know yeah, that. Yeah, Fred Thompson the character. ran for president. Yeah, he was a congressman for a long time. Yeah, apparently, yeah. Too. yeah. But the, he like ran as a libertarian, which was super weird. Russians don't take a dump, son, without a plan. Was that his campaign slogan? No, do you I think hope he should have so. used that? It was recent yeah. because I remember, like, some of my conservative friends from back in my hometown were like gunning for his campaign. It was so <laughs> odd. I was like, wait, the the dude from Red October, like the cat. That's weird. That's weird. But they yeah. he, they were they were totally playing the Reagan thing. Like, oh yeah, actors can be conservative. <laughs> it's true. He he plays a version of this character in everything he was ever Yes, in. yes. You know, this hard-charging, but ultimately kind of reasonable, square-shooter, plain-talking Texan mm-hmm. kind of guy, um, which in a military movie works a thousand percent. I think that's the one thing he can do. He wasn't typecast. He was just cast yeah. as, you know, some version of Fred Dalton Thompson. Um, Most of my did you knows were like because I went Googling for like how much secret information did this movie accidentally reveal about our military technology. Um, And I guess like not much. Most of the extras were submariners, which was cool. Um, I didn't know that. I didn't know that a lot of the main cast had military experience. Yes. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. So like Connery was in the Royal Navy. James Earl Jones was in the Army. And like Scott Glenn was a Marine. 
Um, mm-hmm. So like not all necessarily experience on subs, but I assume enough to have a working knowledge of what they were saying. Yeah, and a lot of them spent time on subs, especially Scott Glenn, who spent time aboard an American sub and was so taken by the commanding officer of the sub he was on that he basically based his character on that person. So the thing, I think his name was Captain Fargo, un- improbably, mm-hmm. um, and said that he was so cool and gave commander so coolly, un- even under pressure. And he's like, I basically just played that guy. And Scott Glenn's fantastic. Scott Glenn, as cool and competent, works for me every yeah. single time. I don't know. He's looked like he's been 50 since he was in the right stuff. There's something about his skin that looks weather-beaten and timeless and from the blinks. time he was 26. No. And he never he never smiles in this movie. The only time I've ever seen him really smile big is he's got this big shit-eating grin in the right stuff where he's being racist, which I don't love. Yeah. But you also realize, oh, yeah, Scott Glenn, don't smile. That's not what we look to Scott Glenn for. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to look like you are surveying something and making a hard decision out of conflicting information and ultimately getting it right. That's the Scott Glenn While wearing, corner. weirdly, a turtleneck. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of turtlenecks. Also, one thing, this is just things that I notice. Um, my dad was in the Navy, and I was watching this one time, and he said, you know, do you see those those glasses everyone is wearing? Because he was an eye doctor mm. in, the, in the Navy. So this is the thing he knows. Like, you'll notice how wildly untra- unattractive these glasses are. These like, really big sort of like serial killer dude yeah. glasses you know what i'm talking about he's like yeah we called those the prophylactics because if if no if you wore them you definitely weren't gonna worry about getting anyone pregnant ah! which i thought was funny um so you see a lot of those scott glenn is is great other other research things um there, well, i don't know if this is a hey did you know but like i when i was reading the book specifically i grew up in virginia beach my dad was in the navy so i've got yeah. some like I spent a lot of weekends at the shipyard, you know, in the beach and stuff like that. And all of those scenes where, like, the Red October sneaks into Norfolk was so weird to me and creepy. Because then you get this <laughs> feeling of, like, what's happening out there? Because I was just yes. there. And, like, am I going to die? Are we all going to die? <laughs> so that was weird. That was not a did you know. Um, but the only other thing that I uh, found out when I was Googling all of this stuff is that there was one thing when the Red October and the Dallas are going through like Thor's twins and uh, the people in the background are talking about like the sounds they can hear and they say one thing about some kind of auditory anomaly that turned out to be that like revealed that the U.S. had a very specific quiet navigation technology that was not supposed to be revealed. So like the extras who were submariners and were just like chatting amongst themselves, I guess, accidentally revealed a black ops submarine warfare secret. That's incredible stuff. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Did we have to change it? Did we have to scrap this whole project? I couldn't find any information about I, it. I couldn't find about that. Apparently, it's still it's like called Grava Ops or something like yeah. that. The Bell Labs had had invented and spent like a billion dollars mm-hmm. on. Apparently, like it didn't matter that much because you that you knew it exists doesn't mean you could do anything better or whatever. But that it slept through it all is really remarkable. The Navy also hoped that this would do for. Um, submarine submariner recruitment that Top Gun did for you know the. The, I guess the, that's the Navy, right? The mm-hmm. Top Gun's also the Navy, but would do for the the pl- fighter pilots and ne- aerial the aerial parts of the Navy. So they had basically recruitment tables set up outside movie theaters <laughs> where Hunt for Red October was playing. Um, alas, it did not get no, the same kind nobody of nobody wants uh, to be on a tube. No. Listen, submarines are a nightmare actual nightmare of unimaginable cruelty and malice like especially for you i imagine being so tall oh like, i'm tall and claustrophobic and i get motion sickness oh so for me it is basically being prostrated and puking that would be my um station 
Yeah, there's that it, scene when um, when they pick up Alec Baldwin after he like gets, oh. gets into the the Dallas basically um, when Mancuso is running down to meet him as they pull him out of the water and he keeps saying down ladder down ladder make a hole and you can see that like there is no space to navigate no. in those hallways no space and he can't even get down the goddamn ladder without people having to get out of his way and it reminded me like when I was a kid we took field trips all the time to the shipyard to get on the aircraft carriers and like navigating. The mm-hmm. aircraft carriers, which are giant cities made of tiny hallways and those ladders with no like slant. It's so claustrophobic and terrifying. Oh, and like, I would just have constant nightmares about the thing exploding or imploding. Like that's even worse. The implosion. No, I'm still not exactly sure what would happen to you. Like when a missile a torpedo hits your submarine, how you die. Like there's like 900 things. Yeah. And I don't, I, I try not to think about them at all. Like the idea of a nuclear missile submarine is one of those things that in 300 years, I'd be like, are you kidding right. me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, the, like the, what are they, what were the iron sides from the Civil yes. War? Like, what? The iron side, the monitor and the mirror. You Merrimack, made it right? out of cast iron? What is wrong this with This seems you? insane. <laughs> There's that scene where Baldwin is trying to hunt down Cook's assistant, Loganov, and he goes through the missile tube yeah. part of the... The, the sub and there's just these giant tubes full of multi-war headed nuclear missiles and you're like this whole thing is insane <laughs> this whole situation is not something that should ex- exist um at all okay let's see uh, the things we google any oh no's from the the movie any if we had to do this over again oh no's i mean there are no women in the movie yeah but can you i mean in the 80s I honestly don't know. Were women allowed on either. submarines? I don't. I don't know I have either. No idea. I mean, they were allowed on ships, I think, but I don't know if right. they were allowed on submarines because those are, kind, you know, kind of different. Um, so it's not so much an oh no as like a meh. That's a thing that yeah. it's, that exists. There's one woman. There's uh, oh gosh, what's her name? Doctor Gates McFadden. Yes, Doctor Beverly Crusher, better known from, from the Next Trek. Generation. Yes. Yeah. Is Jack Ryan's wife. She has one line. She's there on screen for three seconds, and then that's it. That's the only woman you ever see. There, no, there's another woman who is in my quibbles, and maybe this is the oh no for me. It's not a big one, but when Jack Ryan mansplains turbulence to the flight <gasps> oh, attendant. Oh, yeah, yeah. So he's on a plane, and one of Jack Ryan's character features is that he doesn't like to fly. And at the very beginning, he's flying to go meet um, James Greer to say, we've got these pictures of these weird holes on the submarine. And the flight attendant says, you know, you should try to get some sleep. It's a long flight. And he says, I can't sleep because of the turbulence. And the flight attendant's like, what? Yeah, what and he's that? like, you know, turbulence. It's like, right, a flight attendant will have never heard of turbulence. <laughs> and he's like, Six. like that's that's a garbage move. I'm not mm-hmm. sure what that's supposed to do. Like, Michelle and I was like, yeah, that's that's a that's a bad look. Um, the director that was initially approached for this, and I don't have the name in front of me, turned it down because he didn't want to direct an all-male cast. Oh. Like, he's like, I'm not sure he can do anything differently here, but I'm not interested in spending my time with an all-male cast. Now, maybe he's a perv, and that's why. Uh, I don't know. Maybe he does this for bad reasons. But at the very least, it was a thing that was noted at the time. And like you, I tried to find out if you could... What could have Jonesy been, been a woman? A woman right? I don't know. I yeah, don't, I don't know. Seaman Bowman could have been a woman. Like, can women be on subs now? I, I, I have zero I idea. I mean, idea. in the Top Gun remake sequel thing, there's some female fighter pilots in the trailer. So some of that has changed. I know things in combat have changed. And I was like, if it were made now, definitely, you know, Scott Glenn's character would have been a hyper competent female sub captain. Mm-hmm. If the thing is possible, like that's just, we wouldn't, this just wouldn't exist in this way anymore. But knowing the time is, is it historically accurate? And you can't update the timeline because then the Soviet union doesn't exist. So you might be stuck 
to some degree. Frankly, I was even a little surprised to think about it again that we get Courtney B. Vance and James Earl Jones as people of color. Mm-hmm. There's two black guys. Um, and since it's competence porn, of course, they're competent. But you can see a worse version of this movie where the black character is incompetent or, or the something only one like who that. dies or something. The like only one there. who dies or makes the big mistake or gets, you know, white-splained something about something else. But, it, you know, it's a very... The race doesn't really matter in a way that I guess is okay, but it's also not a feature at all. Um, the, they're just there. So I just looked it up. Women were allowed to serve on submarines starting in 2010. Yeah, so if the so movie it wouldn't was work made now, way. it would be fine. But like now, literally now, because that's really yeah. recent. Um, so it's one of those things where it's like your fave is problematic, but is it even really problematic? Because that's just how it was. Yeah, just history is problematic. Right, exactly. Like <laughs> you can't guess. make a movie about war without it being a little bit um, yeah. questionable. There's an oh, there are several actually oh no moments in the book that mm, are about race mm. that I was like, oh God, this is painful. Um, like I don't think anyone's race is described in the book that I no. recall until mine either. I looked for it too. Yeah. And then at the end, um, one of the Russian, when the, when like the crews start mingling from the Dallas and the, um, and the red October, one of the Russians says something about like, Oh, I've never seen a black person before. And yes. that was a moment that I was like, Oh God, <laughs> that's what, please don't do that. Tom Clancy. Like, I do not believe no. that there are no black people in Russia. I mean, I mean, is that, we- is that wrong? I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's just awkward. And... It's just why and why put it there? Yeah, that's the other part. Why put it? There? I feel. I felt like it was part of the propaganda thing that Tom Clancy was doing. Was like, oh, and now the Russians are going to experience diversity for the first time. And like, that's not. Well, there were. Mu- I mean, in Afghanistan, right? yeah. I mean, and, like, they're Russia's not black, but they're people country. of color. Yeah, I don't know. Russia's bigger know. than the U.S. and like borders so many countries where people of color exist like that's not real i don't that's not yeah um but that was definitely awkward and weird um but surprisingly i mean surprisingly for a a book and a movie about the military and like men being men and all this kind of stuff there there aren't a lot of moments in the movie especially that i was like oh that's terrible um well and it's a feature of and i had maybe this for the end like what is this movie about and it's not really about anything (laughs) i mean it's it's like i said it's a game of chess where the stakes are who wins the game of chess not we don't ever think they're going to nuke new york or something like that the the worst outcome i guess here would be that the red october is sunk when jack ryan and burt mancuso are they're all together and all of our characters die and it becomes like a tragedy, you know, like the sinking of the Red October. We know that's never going to happen. But since it's not really about an idea, it's not even about West versus East, mm-hmm. there's no, it's just about how can these pieces come together and how can we outflank the Russians and each other and how can we communicate with periscopes and do all this sort of spycraft stuff that it's not really about anything enough that it could be problematic in a way. You know, there's not a lot of landmines to step on because they're yeah. just sort of walking through a field. Um to some degree now. And there's no overt, like there's, it's surprisingly not that violent for a book about like no, military skirmish, essentially. Um, yeah, Logan, I mean, Kamarov gets, takes one shot to the chest mm-hmm. and then the, the cook's assistant gets lit up, but it's even like, it's cut in such a way that, you know, you see the gun shooting into his chest, which is off the frame. It's like below the frame. So he just sort of like does that shaky, you're getting hit by bullets acting thing and then falls to the ground. And that's and that's really it. The Russians th- that we meet, 
aren't presented as bad people. The, right. the ambassador, I think we have sympathy for. Tim Curry, we have sympathy for. The crew, you know, Ramius is very concerned about the crew that aren't defecting, whether or not they're going to get rescued, because he says, you know, at one point, Kamarov says, you know, the Grand, uh, Labrador's only 16 hours away, and, and Ramius says, well, the crew I'll would freeze. freeze before they got rescued, so he cares about them. It's tough. Um, There's not even any, like, talks. I would say, like, the masculinity in this movie, again, surprisingly for a military flick, it's not toxic like there's no the men in this movie have feelings like they've got feelings that they openly display and some of them are negative they resolve their conflicts in way it like interpersonal conflicts in perfectly yes. healthy ways like there's that great scene that we already talked about between sam neil and sean connery where they're like vulnerable with each other and mm. nobody talks about women in a derogatory way like that's just everybody's yeah. reasonable like because it's right because it's reasonable competence porn where people have to listen to each other's arguments and be nice about it. Nobody is like toxic and terrible. Right. Yeah. And that the, the problem before them is largely one of logistics and techniques. Mm -hmm. You don't, it doesn't get into much beyond, you know, which kind of sonar are we going to use at which particular yeah. <laughs> time? How, what percent of the reactor? Mm -hmm. Um, apparently the, the reactor limits are n meaningless because you can go to 105, you can go to 110, 115, no one cares, nothing happens, but that's, that's a separate thing. Okay. So can you save the book or the movie? The, Boy, this is the easiest right. in the entire history of ever thinking about this. Obviously. Is there anybody you want more of and anybody you want less of? I would watch an entire two hours of of Ramius fishing in Maine. Like, just talking yeah, or just, just, just fishing? Just fishing. Like just being yeah. happy in America. I yeah. would, I, like maybe Jack Ryan comes and they have tea sometimes and talk about like... Camus. Like, if you're going to have Camus happen, Tom Clancy, like, have it happen after the movie is over. Um, yeah, I would watch that. I mean, how else yeah. would you make a sequel other than, you know, Jack Ryan goes off on No, I'm, I'm, I'm even more saying, like, if the movie, you're watching Hunt for Red October and you could give someone five more minutes oh. on screen, is there anyone you want a little bit more of? I could Jonesy. come up with anything. Maybe you get a quite a bit of maybe a little bit more Jonesy. I think you get much more Ramius and the the veneer starts to crack. Like there's mm -hmm. something about you don't want too much about Ramius because then he's not just a profile of competence and military dignity. <laughs> um Ryan you get plenty of. Greer, I think doesn't you know, Glenn, I don't think there's anyone I don't want any more Seaman Beaumont. I don't need any more of the engineer who's great. Um, you know, the one guy wearing glasses on the Soviet sub, mm -hmm. which is weird. And he's wearing the orange suit. And he wears suit, the orange so jumpsuit, yeah. Yeah. Who, he kind of weirdly looks like Harold Ramis. I was like, wait, is that? No, it's and he's not. never not smoking? Um, no. Um, I, I think this is pretty damn well cast and apportioned, mm -hmm. I guess, is my takeaway. Is that I didn't have a lot of, there's no, and no clunker of lines either. That's one that struck me too. There's not, there's not one line where I'm like, doesn't go over like a lead balloon. Everything feels like it's done right and well. There's nothing that feels like a weird note at all to me. Nothing that struck out to me. Mm -hmm. Let's do favorite quotes. Oh, one ping, obviously. One ping only, please. <laughs> I, love, I love it so much. It's so good. And then I like I do the um, son of a bitch like very <laughs> frequently, and nobody understands that I'm quoting Jack Ryan from Hunter in October. They just think I'm having a temper tantrum. But it's like that exact like the way he slams his hand down, and he's got his other hand on his forehead, and he's ignoring everyone. It's such yes. a well done. It's such a well done line. He the rare double palm down, double hand slap, yeah. double son of like he does it twice, son of a bitch once, and then a really loud one just so that everyone in the 
uh, situation room or whatever that is mm-hmm. down in sub basement level four of the of the White House has to um, turn and look to him. I like the murderers row of old white guys in that situation yeah. room. They're all they're just all you know. You don't need to know who they are. It's, it's the Joint Chiefs of Chance, jo- Joint Chiefs of Staff, plus some other people. Like okay. This is kind of what I imagine it looks like when you get together the Joint Chiefs of Staff and some other people. Yeah. Like this is very much out of my um, uh, mental model of what it looks like down the in the situation in every movie room. And also in the West Wing. Like they all look like that. <laughs> they, all, they all look like that um, for sure. Oh, I like the man was a pig. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that actor's great. That plays that particular dude. Um, I can't remember the n- actor's name, and he's been in some other things, but he's always playing a Russian that you kind of like, but it's also kind of sleazy. <laughs> um, he's really good in that particular role. I wouldn't mind a little bit more of him because he's like, if Sam Neill's sort of between him and Ramius, because that guy's really, he knows what's going on, and he questions even more. And it's like, this man will get us all killed. And Cameron's like, he like takes him by this the shoulders and like slams yeah, him against so. the wall and said, shut up. Um, the opening scene when Marco says "cold and hard" is like, cold. Oh. yeah, <laughs> this is just a Dude. scene about Sean Connery's eye wrinkles. And like, well, they tell you what the movie is about in that show. Yes. They open on Sean Connery just sort of looking, looking out into a boring ass river in Russia, mm-hmm. and you're like, I'm in, I'm <laughs> a thousand percent in. I don't care. He's looking at something that's interesting to him, and Sean Connery looking at interesting things in that hat with that beard. <laughs> Is all that I'm looking for. With that for hair, right you didn't talk about the I hair. I am in. The hair. Favorite scene? Favorite scene. Oh, my favorite scene. Um, I don't know. The whole thing. I mean, I really love that scene with the ping. And when, yes. when Sean Connery um, realizes what's happening and he like slams the periscope shut. Yes. That's such that's a, really a great moment. Because that's like, he, he's, he's so unshakable through the whole movie. And that's the moment where he gets shaken when he realizes that like, oh, this is actually happening. Um, so I love, I love is that, that slam one of he's relieved or anxious or a little bit of both? Or is that triumph? I've kind of wondered, I'm reading a lot into that slam. I've wondered over time, like, what is the feeling? And I think maybe you're right. Like, this is really happening. Yeah. It's maybe like that's the right way panic, of putting it. Almost. Like, yeah. Holy I'm really doing this. Yeah. yeah. I can't turn back at this point mm-hmm. though. He wrote the letter, which means he can't turn back, which I think is actually a quibble. And I'll get to that in a minute. I really um, like the yeah. scene uh, when the captain on the aircraft carrier and the other guy who was giving Jack Ryan shit. Um, yes. Uh, I don't remember when, when the captain like explains that Jack Ryan is competent and was a Marine and sit down, please. And shut the fuck up. Like, I love yeah, that right. moment. Um, where you find out like why people take Jack Ryan seriously, even though mm-hmm. he's like purportedly a nobody. Yeah, Russians don't take a dump son without a plan mm-hmm. is a quotable one for me. Also, very quickly thereafter, where Ryan's thinking aloud, literally has a shower idea while, <laughs> while he's, he's thinking like, about shaving. how how Ramius is going to convince his crew to get off the boat and stay off the boat mm-hmm. um, in a believable way that they're going to fake a radiation problem. And he says, "How do you how do you convince a crew they want to get off a submarine? How do you convince a crew they get off nuclear a nuclear submarine?" Su- and then he immediately cuts to, I know how they're going to get him off the submarine. I love, yes. I think that's so good. I love that. He's like half shaven, maybe a little too perfectly half shaven for the moment. But anyway, um, a small, a small detail and something I, I really like. I really like, though I don't understand it. I think it's maybe competence porn when they're running Thor's twins and you get the the whole machinery of how you run a submarine mm-hmm. where the, the, the captain says a command to the XO and the XO says it's the diving officer and the diving officer. I don't know why they have to do that, why they have to repeat the commands four times, yeah. but it, it's wonderful on film. It's very auditory and the music's confusing. Will, yeah, it's like they're repeating one command as another command comes in. It doesn't seem like um, 
like don't we, the game of telephone is a game of telephone for a reason mm-hmm. and it seems like this would have many of the same problems i guess it's so that the commanding officer can hear his command being relayed to the person that's needing to be relayed to but he's like right there yeah like the diving officer is like four feet away couldn't he just repeat it back to him i don't understand i'm sure there's some reason but in thinking about it a little too hard again i was like huh that's weird but i like the whole you know 50 percent down angle on the planes i don't know what that means but it just sounds cool it it's just f- right full rudder i don't know what that means it's just all <laughs> wonderful <laughs> they don't do it on the dallas did you notice that like the commands that Mancuso no. gives on the Dallas are repeated, but they're repeated by the person who's doing the job. It's not like four dudes deep. It's like just the yeah. one guy. I think it's supposed to make the Soviets seem like more feudal somehow. Oh. Like I, there's something like the, the dress and then the, the hyper formality of the commands. This is like, that's East that reads as Eastern European mm-hmm. <laughs> somehow. I don't know. Ah, that um, scene is so good. Cause, and again, it's like it, the, the sleazy guy who then men with the yeah. pig. like you have to watch him do really, really complicated math on the spot yes. because Ramius felt like it. Like he's, there's no reason I, I, I could never no. figure out why Ramius makes them run that path so quickly. Um, other than like, he just wants to see what the ship can do that he's about to turn over to the Americans. So like, who cares that he's also never taken out before and is larger than the average typhoon yeah, class. I, that, that, that never made And he's doing like, either. they're, they're all doing the math in their head as they go. Ramius has already done it or he wouldn't have given the command because he wouldn't have known that they could make it. And like watching yeah. those dudes sweat while they do like calculus. It's so satisfying. <laughs> It's very satisfying. I, I guess we're supposed to think that Ramius knows the tolerance for the maps is wider than the maps. You know, the, the these guys are playing by rote because the guy says, you know, give me a map mm-hmm. um, and a stopwatch and I could fly the Alps for you in a plane with no windows, which does that's competence of a kind, but that's really just sort of knowledge is not wisdom where Ramius knows that the maps are actually not quite that strict. Mm-hmm. And I, I my knowledge supersedes your ability to like do algebra. I actually know something you don't, and I'm proving it to you right now. Um, I also think it sets up later. Yeah, it's just a flex. But it also sets up later that he knows the tolerances are better when they need to run the torpedo into the side of the the wall, Mm -hmm. right? That he can go later than the thing says, and it'll help him um, basically, I don't know, pull a hard Ralph uh, (laughs) that the torpedo can't. For some reason, the torpedo can't turn as high, fast as a uh, submarine. That's the length of two football fields, but that's quibbles. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I could watch this movie a million times. Mm-hmm. Let's go to quibbles and questions. Okay. Um, do you want to go from smallest to largest? I've got one big quibble, but I don't know. Why don't you go first for this oh, one? Oh, God, no, I'm not ready. Quibbles. Okay. Um. Well, I mentioned it already, but, like, the fact that they find the sub in the first 10 minutes, like, yes. of the thing is probably my biggest one. Um, it, because, I mean, ultimately, it doesn't matter. They still have to communicate that they found it and figure out what it is and, you know, all the things mm-hmm. that make the movie happen. But, like... The hunt is the hunt is over. <laughs> they found it. <laughs> like it's over. Yeah, they, they, the hunt is over, and also the the stakes are significantly lowered because the American Jonesy presumably could say to, you know, North American command of the U.S. Navy, here's what to listen for, <laughs> right? You know, here here's the, they've got these new boats, but it makes this sound when you speed it up by ten, and it's easy enough that when they have to come up to get Baldwin and they go back down, they can reacquire him within like nine seconds. Yeah. It takes zero time to reacquire. So that and and related to that. Well, once the Americans have the Red October, it's not like the Russians can't build another one. It's like, what, what's a, okay, so they have the Red October, we can take a look at it. If it's still silent, they could make another Red October. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the purple November, the next <laughs> one coming off the line is a little bit of a question too, which then leads to my ultimate quibble slash question is why is Ramius defecting? Mm-hmm. It's, in the book, it's overdetermined that Russia sucks. In the movie, 
it's we wait till the end and Ramius says to Ryan, you didn't ask me why. And Ryan says, well, I figured it would have told me when he says, I knew when they showed me the schematics for this, that it was a boat with what one purpose. And then he stops. Yeah. And the purpose is to launch, you know, start a war. And there's some people that want to do that. I'm like, okay, I'm with you. And then he stops talking. And that's it. The, the why is because the boat is meant as a first strike weapon. And I guess we're meant to infer that if the U.S. has Caterpillar technology, we're basically back to even, that we're back to mutually assured destruction because you could launch your boats from off um, New Jersey and I could launch my nuke from off Murmansk and we both would have no warning, I guess. But, yeah. but boy, that's a lot of subtext to read, <laughs> literal subtext, submarine text, <laughs> um, to, to read into this. I think that's a tough spot. Yeah, and also, I like, think it's a tough spot. because we might kill each other is kind of. I mean, that was the whole. That was the whole thing. Like the whole thing was we might kill each other. That that's yeah, the Cold we War. We might kill each so other, right? He's essentially defecting because he's a Russian in the Cold War, which is no. <laughs> right. Well, and Ryan saying he doesn't know why he's going to defect at the end undercuts him being so sure he was going to defect in the Situation Room. Mm-hmm. Because his like wife he's so is sure dead, because wife is the, uh, all. Uh, 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 wives die all the time right. like there's probably 15 percent of the russian old dudes have dead wives and they're not defecting that's a little strange mm-hmm. but what i think that we all get away with that i think for the, what i said before is that as an american watching this we don't need a reason because we understand the meta reason which is the soviet union sucks yes. and sean connery seems competent ergo he knows that america is better even like well, when I watched it, you know, my in my childhood, I was born in 1984. The Cold War was functionally, mm-hmm. you know, over like a few years later. Right. And, by the time you were aware yeah, by the of time things, I was conscious, was... the Cold War was done. So where did I get that, like, the Soviet Union is bad? Where did that come from? I have no idea. The, the air. Yeah. It's it just, just like, comes from the air. This, the same place gender roles right, come from. Right. Like, just this know? cultural yeah. norm. Um, but you're right. Like you watch the movie and you understand that he's leaving because Russia is bad. But like, where did Russia is bad? Okay, come from <laughs> now. It's so strange. It's very strange. So that's one quibble. Another quibble is, well, Skip Tyler's fake beard is a tough. <laughs> that's it's a bad beard. I don't know what to say because this also has the single greatest hairpiece mm-hmm. in American film history. Sean Connery's toupee. Sean Connery's been bald since I think he was playing Bond and he had a Bond and he had toupees back then. Um, the hairpiece cost twenty grand. Yes. Twenty thousand dollars. I want toupee. it to be made of like mink. And let me tell you something. That thing is worth it at ten times the price. <laughs> it does the job. <laughs> it is like a shark fin of hair. <laughs> It's like those things that Spartan soldiers have, like those combs on the top of their helmets mm-hmm. of human Sean Connery hair. It it carries a ton of water for whatever doing. It's perfect. I don't know what we're supposed to imagine Sean Connery or Marco Ramius's morning hair routine is. <laughs> does he does he get a protractor out? I, I don't know no. what he does to make it have this perfect, you know, wave. That's like a hair scimitar <laughs> up there. It's an incredible toupee and a wonderful look and his beard is the platonic ideal of a sea captain's beard he looks like he need he i mean you can imagine him in a in a like old fisherman sweater like he just looks so seaworthy (laughs) he's like a he's like a venn diagram of james bond and Ernest hemingway yes yes but russian but russian but actually but not Scottish. Scottish. And obviously for a Scottish few min- the whole time. <laughs> he does about 60 seconds of when they're, you know, it's a little complicated because we've been hearing the Russians speak English the whole time and then they meet the Americans and they're supposed to be speaking broken English mm-hmm. because it's not their first language. And Connery tries to do a, Ru- a Russian accent for like 
nine seconds mm. and immediately abandons it, <laughs> which I think is the right move, but it was just funny to hear him say, the crow's being rescued, yes? Yeah. And like, wait, wait, what are you doing? Don't, don't, just go, just we don't, don't, no one cares, no one cares. Just do Sean, no, that's not what we're here for. We're here for your toupee and your Scottish accent um, and the cut of your jib, <laughs> uh, for Whatever sure. Uh, here's another quibble. Again, it doesn't matter. That's why they're quibbles. We love the movie. Mm-hmm. So in a great scene where Bert Mancuso is using Morse code to communicate by periscope with Ramius, who's also looking through a periscope, Ryan's like, he's the only one you can be seen. It's like, probably. So <laughs> Scott Glenn and Sean Connery are looking at each other through periscopes. Scott uh, Glenn uses Morse code to communicate a very complicated message, mm-hmm. really, about, you know, the Laurentian abyssal is probably a tough ask in Morse code. Mm-hmm. I'm just guessing. And then Sean Connery has to confirm. He says, okay, if this is true, if this is your intention that you're going to defect, um, verify with one ping, which is, gives us that great one ping only. Mm-hmm. And he has to do it again, and the crew's skeptical, and it's kind of fun. Does he not have the same light on his periscope? Can't he just confirm with blink your light twice, Ramius? I don't get this. That's fair. It's a quibble. I don't know. But like, so... Because otherwise, couldn't he just Morse code back in that in that moment? If his Morse code is so good to translate Morse code on the fly into English, they just forgot to put on in the Russian boat <laughs> the little light that lets them do that? That's a quibble. I wonder if they... Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. We would have had enough... The whole book I mean, and movie is predicated on the assumption that we know a shit ton about Soviet subs, but not this Yeah. One. So whether or right. not the light is on there. I feel like Jack Ryan would have known. Well, but Ramius could have been like, dudes, I don't need to do a ping. Right. Are you reading my Morse code? <laughs> What's wrong with you, dingus? Yeah, and also we do, we're, we're, we're checked and balanced all the way down here on both boats. Scott Glenn says, you know, I, I could be given a dimension to Playboy of the Month. My Morse is so rusty. Don't you have signal officers that all they do is this? Could you, get, could you write it down and check it out? Can we do a first draft? We, we, we can't get someone to check the old man's Morse code here? Yeah. That's another That whole quibble. scene is very odd. Like, the Americans are 30 yards away. They've flooded their torpedo tubes. So we're going to surface to look around? Yeah. Like, look around at what? To look around. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. But it's great because there's that... Um, I love unspoken language in these military things. There's a great scene like this in 13 Days where it's like, this whole thing is a language without words. Mm-hmm. And, you know, flooding your tubes but not opening your tube doors means something, whereas, you know, turning on your active sonar versus this all means you're, you're doing, like, weird bird mating rituals where it doesn't look like anything's being communicated, but a lot is, is being understood from each other. I just think all that yeah, stuff is Yeah, and that is, is scene fun. when they intercept the missile, when the Dallas intercepts the missile from the Tupel, from Tupelov ship, and yeah. the CO, because Mancuso's not on the boat anymore, says, what does he say? He says a great line, hit the ceiling. And you just yeah, know that he means yes. surface really fast. Like, yes. it's just, you just translate it. It's such I a love the jar. I love jargon yes. like this. I just hit the ceiling. It's all fantastic. Bottom the boat, you know, means go deep. Mm-hmm. You know, it's wonderful stuff. Um, other other quibble, questions. We can move from quibbles to questions. I don't know if this is a quibble. Oh, I forgot what it was. Crud. I had oh, I right. had a quibble that was like, oh, whatever. It'll come back to me. Yeah. Uh, big questions. Ramius defects. Mm-hmm. In 18 months, he's been thoroughly debriefed by the U.S. Navy. What's he doing on a Sunday morning? Fishing. <laughs> Just by himself? No Sam Neill. He's not hanging out with, with the engineer. No. I don't think he would hang out with any of his officers. They, like, get tea once a quarter. 
Did Jack Ryan have bourbon together on New Year's Eve every year? Something like that? I hope so. They get together? Yeah. Yeah. Camera of, oh, I have a special section I invented and didn't It's called headcanon. This is the headcanon section of the book where you make up something you want to be true. Okay. Kamarov, we never, he gets shot and he sort of like slumps down. You never see a body. Mm-hmm. What if he's not dead? What if he's not dead and he spends the next nine years studying paleontology <laughs> and he changes his, he changes his name to Dr. Alan Grant <laughs> and he takes it on an accent and he starts the movie Jurassic Park in, of all places, Montana. Yeah. That's my head I buy that. For this. I buy that. Oh. He got to see Montana. I remember my quibble. Yes. The cook. Loganov. Oh, that's one of my quibbles, yes. too. So in the book, you are given an explicit explanation for how he knows what's going on, which that he is a secret KGB agent who has been placed on the ship to mm-hmm. keep an eye on... Marco and the crew and Marco. everyone because you're assuming that like occasionally the KGB puts agents on ships, right? Yeah. The surveillance state is something you're supposed to take for granted in, in all these Russian spaces. Yeah. That some There's like the G, the political office says the GRU and KGB could have a, uh, officers board I wouldn't know. Like the threat of being monitored all the time is as, as important as actually being monitored yeah. all the time. Right. So he in the book is given explicit orders. Like if something happens, here's what you do, which is exploding a missile and trying to escape. Right. And that's what he does in the movie, but you have no idea who he is. And maybe you're supposed to assume off that one throw li- throwaway line that Sean Connery says about any, you know, they could be on board. Um, maybe you're supposed to know who he is, but I did not catch it until I read the book that he was an agent. I thought he was just a cook who like overheard something that he wasn't supposed to. We're not told in the movie a that the cook could be a KGB agent, no. and B why he enacted the self destruct protocol. Like what? What's he doing? What does he know? Yeah. <laughs> What's he knowing? What What is he? What did he know that says you know what? I gotta blow this bastard up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not clear to us at all because the crew doesn't even know. Yeah. The crew has no idea that something's going on. That the the mission plans have been scrapped and everything else. There is that scene where they dodged the Russian torpedo and he's like, "They're really why are they really shooting at mm-hmm. us?" Which is a wonderful question. Ramey says, "If we we're really shooting us, we'd be dead." He's like, "Wait I a know. minute, that doesn't <laughs> make any sense." So the crew has some sort of like furrowed eyebrow stuff. At Ramius, but not to the point, I don't think, where a, a, cr- a crew member would be like, we got to take this down. <laughs> I'm going to blow myself and the whole right. submarine up at the same time. The it's only a instance strange. in the movie that you get that the cook knows something is happening is right after the political officer dies and they're taking the body out. And he yes. well, he gives Ramius a look that's like, that's weird. That's weird. Yeah, which yeah. does not equal, let me scuttle this fucking ship. <laughs> like, that is not, yeah. that point A does not lead to point B. And that's my quibble. I got two more quibbles. Okay. Um, and these are quibbles out of love, <laughs> I should say. The first is, is Tim Curry good at his job? So Connery breaks the dude's neck mm-hmm. and chokes him out. And Curry, that does that really look enough like you hit your head on the table falling down on slip T? Like, I don't know. Maybe it's hard to do. An, I'm sure it's hard to do an autopsy in like four square feet in like a submarine and Ramius is standing over you. But it seems like, could you tell, does that line up? Th- did Connery mimic sufficiently in that maneuver what it looks like to get killed by hitting your head on a a table i don't know i just i I, i'm suspicious about Mm -hmm. that and then my big one and it's one of my favorite scenes maybe my favorite scene in the movie when they first sit down the officers and they tells curry you know samuel tells curry go get some weird busy work so we can get you out of this room they sit down and they ask what to know happened to the political officer and basically we get 
Ramius eating food and telling people to shut mm-hmm. up and I know what I'm doing. In this great when Cortez came to the New World, he burned the ships. As a result, his men were well motivated, which now I'm turning into a bit of a pirate as all my <laughs> accents do if I go on beyond about four syllables. Two things about this. One, he could send the letter from New York to Pedoran saying, I'm taking the ship because of reasons that we don't hear. He doesn't have to do it while they're on, they're in the water. Yeah. Get, get over to there, send a postcard from, you know, uh, the, with a Statue of Liberty postcard yes. saying, you know what, I've got quibbles, but here's, here's what happened. Because then they wouldn't be chased by the Red Fleet. Okay, fine. Secondly, that's the first he has is like political. And even they even hang a lantern on saying, why would you do this? Like we each have our own reasons, which we must, you know, bear. Mm-hmm. Okay, which is not a great answer. But the other motivating thing for that speech is he wants the crew to know there is no turning back. Well, you know what? You could have just told him you sent the letter. Yeah. Didn't actually have to send it. Could have just said, you know what? I sent the letter. The problem, Cortez had to burn his ships because he couldn't hide his ships from his dudes. Because he'd be like, hey, where are the ships? Like, oh, they burned them. There's the burning holes. He's not hiding them like over in the other bay. So he has plausible deniability to say, you know what? I wrote this letter. We can't go back. I don't know. I, that's a quibble. Well, I what do you think? That, Am I unfair? Is that are those unfair? Well, I think in the book, this, and this is something that maybe the book does better, is that you get a, a clearer picture of who Ramius is, and right. that he is an arrogant sob. Which in the yeah. in the movie, he's he's like almost a platonic ideal of a ship captain. So he's not a person. So he can't have faults like be like arrogance. Right. He in the movie he would do nothing that reduces his chance of success by one percent. Right. Even. But in the in the book, he's arrogant and he is playing chicken with mm-hmm. the fleet because he wants to give a big a middle finger as possible to the people who killed his wife right in his, right, in his mind right. so like in the book it makes sense i think that he is doing that he's like playing chicken essentially with his life and the life of his men in this billion dollar ship mm-hmm. um, but the way that he's that connery plays him it doesn't make sense yeah it it it, it a lot it enters a crack of stupidity that you're not quite ready to think about with the Connery portrayal of Ramius, right? Like that he just wouldn't do that. But you're at the book Ramius is not the stentorian platonic ideal of the modern major general, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are my two big quibbles. All right, Amanda, what else? Do we hit everything? I think so. Are you going to watch it tonight? Probably. (laughs) It holds up, right? Of course, yes, yes. I I mean, I would love... Love, hate. I would, I don't know. I can't decide. I would hate if they remade it, but I would love if they remade yeah. it with some women um, in the movie. I would, that would be amazing. What if? Let's play, well, let's end on this game. Let's say you could, for whatever reason, do the same plot at the same moment of time and cast whomever you want in whatever role. We, we're headcanoning it, right? Yeah. We're headcanoning it. Gina Torres as Ooh, Ramius I like that. would be amazing because she is basically Ramius in Firefly. <laughs> mm. <laughs> like she is that very, like, except it's a space captain of a you know spaceship and not not Mm. but she has that spartan like i know what i'm doing kind of thing happening yeah so that would be amazing i think maybe like amy adams as jack ryan would be yeah great amy adams i was thinking about this jessica chastain plays a kind Mm. of jack ryan character in zero dark 30 You know, it's kind of the CIA operative who knows what's going on and blah, blah, blah. I could see her doing that. There's a certain franticness in Baldwin's performance that I like. You know, he's kind of rushing from place to place and he's un- unsteady and off his feet. Jennifer Lawrence, I think, would do very well in a role like that where she seems strong and competent and vulnerable. At the same time, I think that one would be interesting. Um, I would love Angela Bassett as Burtman Oh, my God. I think she'd be wonderful. <laughs> that is that. perfect. That is perfect. Yes. 
um, would be really good in that in that particular role. I was thinking, so in this role, Connery's around 60, mm-hmm. something like that. What hair do you give any woman we cast as a 60-year-old that can, can compete with the scimitar hair and the... I'm just not sure what you do. It's just not a thing. It doesn't, yeah, like, no. Women's fashion has many more options, in gener- generally speaking, than men's fashion does. But when it comes to facial hair, it's, it's, a, no, it's a no-go territory, generally speaking. Well, you, there's not much you can do there. Right, have, it would be the hair of, um, oh, what is her name? Captain Janeway. Like it would be Captain Janeway. Just pulled back. Hair. It just pulled, it'd be pulled back so tight it looks like her eyelids hurt. Yeah. Like that's what it'd have to be, something mm-hmm. like that. So I'm just not sure you get the, the same thing. Yeah. Oh, you know who should be, I can't remember his name, Tupolev, um, is mm. Michael B. Jordan. Oh, Tupolev. Like, I think he's a little young yet. But he's got, but he's maybe. like so swaggery and like arrogant and I get, mm. I get that vibe from Michael B. Jordan. Yeah. Taraji P. Henson as James Greer, as Janice Greer, I think would work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So just an entirely like gender flipped <laughs> casting. I, I'm I'm here for it. The Huntress for Red October. Amanda, that was super fun. Yes, it was. What what, what do you have other adaptations that we can conscript you to do some of these for? What are your other adaptations? I will one hundred percent talk about Jurassic Park until the day that I die. It's my favorite book. My favorite book, and probably my favorite movie. Wow. I know. Another one where Harrison Ford turned down the lead role? Yeah, and Sam Neill. Why is Sam Neill in all my favorite things? It's weird. Harrison Ford basically could have had his pick of any role from 1981 to like 2005. Mm-hmm. Like any good role, Harrison Ford, if he wasn't in it, it's because he turned it down. Mm-hmm. Or he thought it was going to be a bad role. He had his pick of the litter, which I wonder, it makes me wonder, I was thinking about, you know, who was at the peak of their powers in 1990? Costner. Oh. Is there a role for Costner in this movie? Is he Jack Ryan? No. Kind of. I don't think so. No. He seems like he doesn't move very well. No, he has no face. Like, like his face doesn't do anything. <laughs> no. Now, does a does today's Kevin Costner could he play Ramius? Today's Kevin Costner. I don't think so. I don't think so either. No. He doesn't. As a dude, as a, if you're recasting Connery now as a man, I don't have a great. I don't have a good one. I really don't have a good. I don't know who that would be at this point. Daniel Craig in Connery 20 years? Is so, <laughs> I mean, you're doing the James, but maybe, yeah, maybe. I wonder what kind of beard he can grow. <laughs> that is, that's really the important question. It's really the in the hair piece. Oh, I would also do several adaptations of The Great Gatsby, all of them. Like, I could talk mm. about all of them. You and I talked about how there's no great Dickens, there's no canonical Dickens adaptation. There's, not. there's no one that's like the best no. one. So, because you're a Dickens person. What about Shawshank? How do you feel about Shawshank I Redemption? Love the Shawshank Redemption. So Jurassic, Shawshank. Mm-hmm. Let me see what else is on my list. Lots here of like Stephen I'm... King, not the scary ones. Like oh, so what else? What else is on that uh, besides Stand Shawshank? Stand by Me. Mm, st- oh, Dolores God. Claiborne, I would argue, is not a horror novel. It's an excellent no, movie. No, I agree. God, we have to do Stand by Me. <laughs> we'll do like a Stephen King oh, the leech, of the, the not scary the, like, ones. Leech scene. Oh, oh God, don't make me pass out. <laughs> Maybe the most disturbing single like inferred thing in a realistic movie I've ever seen especially when I watched that when I was like 11 like you don't know what's going down there when you're 11 anyway Mm -hmm. like even on a regular just waking up day without leeches on your balls (laughs) you don't want to talk about what's down there you're not wanting anyone to know and that's that's a tough that's a tough one how do you feel about Wonder Boys do you like Wonder Boys the movie is that I have never seen it yeah I can't get you for that too 
Shawshank. What about the Kira Knightley Pride and Prejudice? What about what's your favorite Austin adaptation? Um, oh, my favorite Austin adaptation. I don't care about Austin adaptations. Okay. Is that terrible? Like, I like no. I like the Kira Knightley version, yeah. but Persuasion is my favorite Austin mm. novel, and I don't think they've made like a perfect adaptation of that one yet. Mm. Yeah, Jurassic Park. I'm gonna need like I'm, I need like a three ring binder of notes to prepare that for that one. So I love that movie. I, I know you you like the book especially well. That, that's the only great Crichton adaptation, right? Is that the only good one? The Andromeda Strain movie is good, but it's not great. Hmm. <laughs> oh, wait about this. I've got two that I think you're gonna. These are fastball. These are batting practice fa- batting practice fastballs oh. for you. Gone with the wind. Oh God. <laughs> Yeah, I could talk about Gone with the Wind. And Gregory Peck as one Atticus Finch, who could also have been Marco Ramius in a oh, different yeah. movie, but the To Kill a Mockingbird book and movie. That have to be like a nine-part series. Clark Gable could have been also Tupelo. Um, Tupelo, that's really I'm good. I, well, you know, yeah, my kids, mm. Atticus and Rhett. And the Rhett, you know, I, I have just a lot of feelings about Gone with the Wind. Eight years after that's my a complicated kids are born. one. It is. That's a complicated one too. Mm-hmm. Do you like the movie? Do you like the movie of Gone I with the mean, Wind? Can you? Yes, I, I, I love the movie. It's terrible. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's. Okay, talk about propaganda. Yeah, that's a tough. That's a tough beat. All of your faves. What are about? Do you have Shakespeare? Do you have like? Is there a Shakespeare adaptation you like? Um. Yes. The of course now the names are just out of my right. brain. Much do about nothing. Mm-hmm. What's what's his name? Emma Thompson. Thank you. Jesus. Yes, the Emma Thompson. Yeah. Keanu Reeves. Thompson. Like who is in it? Denzel Washington. Like what? I love that. Movie <gasps> so much. Denzel Washington is Marco Ramius. Oh. Today's Denzel Washington. It doesn't work because there's no black people in Russia. Tom Clancy. <laughs> Thanks, Tom Clancy. Yes, I would. I would stand behind that. All right. Thanks, everybody. Let us know if you like this one. Give us some more movie ideas. We we're gonna do a few more of these. Talk to you later. Mm-hmm.